I think first and foremost, we need, you know, organizations that are led by leaders who lead instead of administrate. And um, I think one of our primary pathologies in U.S. healthcare is that um, we have organizations that are successful with the status quo. You've got leaders who actually, if they wanted to, could drive their organizations to do more of the right things and less of the wrong things. But more often than not, they choose not to. And I think that that's that's something we need to, I I think, confront and, and grapple with as an industry. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. In healthcare, there are a lot of hard questions. Here today to answer some of them is Sachin Jain, the president and CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan. Sachin was also the former president and CEO of Caremore and Aspire Health. Through his work, Sachin is aiming to reduce healthcare disparities in concrete ways. As an MD as well as an MBA, Sachin's career experience is in both medicine and business, giving him a unique perspective on healthcare companies. He pioneered the world's very first clinical program focused on social isolation, and today served as an adjunct professor of medicine at Stanford, as well as a Forbes contributor. Our discussion today covers his remarkable career, as well as some surprising life lessons. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you, Sajid, for joining me this afternoon. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been uh, looking forward to have you on our podcast. And I thought it would be really interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit about your background. You have such an interesting career path and you've done so much in different areas within healthcare. And so I thought, you know, before you share with us your career and work experience that took you here, can you also share with us your personal background that shaped who you are and how you make those important career decisions along the way that get you to where you are? question. <laughs> yeah, it's a big question. And I, you know, hopefully I'll answer it concisely. So this can turn into more of a conversation than a monologue. But, um, uh, you know, I grew up in, in Northern New Jersey uh, is, uh, you know, my parents immigrated here in the 1970s. And I was the first of their three kids uh, to be born in the United States. And, um, you know, I'm somebody who's lived in kind of multiple worlds uh, for most of my life. Uh, I, you know, both Indian and American, uh, a physician who also does other things. Uh, and, you know, I would say, um, you know, really got interested in healthcare primarily because I grew up around it. You know, my father uh, started the pain management service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center after he finished his anesthesia residency. Um, and we had a strong, you know, kind of connection back to India. And a lot of my aunts and uncles uh, were involved in healthcare activities uh, in rural Rajasthan, which is, you know, where my ancestors are originally from. And so, um, you know, I, I grew up around healthcare and always wanted to figure out, you know, how can I make the biggest difference I possibly can, um, in my career? Um, and then how can I do that within a career in healthcare? And it was actually an undergraduate class that was co-taught by Don Berwick and Howard Hyatt, um, remarkably, uh, where um, I got to see, you know, what it was to be a physician leader or a physician executive, um, largely because 
they taught the class in this kind of you know funny way, which is they brought all of their friends to come teach a seminar and a session of the seminar. And so uh, I got exposed to you know a wide range of really innovative, creative, you know, physician leaders. And so, um, you know, I would say I would credit my mentors along the way, you know, a number of really tremendous people um, for having given me, you know, kind of a, a vision for myself that has evolved, you know, as I've now lived in a lot of different shoes, as you noted um, in your introduction to me. So. so you mentioned about, it's interesting when you bring your, the teachers brought a lot of different friends, which just has different background, uh, it gives you different exposure, what is possible? What are the things that stuck out to you? Well, it, it was this idea that you could have, you know, I grew up with a father who was, you know, ran a pain management service, he took care of patients, he trained fellows, and he did research, which is kind of the traditional academic medicine model. It's, you know, it was the traditional triple threat is what people called it at the time. And um, what I saw was that there was a different kind of a triple threat, which was, you know, you could see patients, um, you could, uh, you know, train trainees, um, but then, you know, you could also drive for policy impact and managerial impact on organizations. And so um, that was really, I think, what stuck out to me. And, you know, I went to medical school thinking I would do a second degree in public policy so that I can try to influence health policy in the country. And then, um, you know, change course actually midway when I realized that policy in the U.S. changes very, very slowly and, um, and that, you know, a lot of organizational, a lot of change in healthcare can be enacted at the organizational level. And at around my third year of medical school, both the Brigham Women's Hospital and the Mass General Hospital appointed new presidents. And, you know, one of them, was um, Peter Slavin, who had the name letters MD, MBA after his name. And the other was Gary Gottlieb, who had the letters MD, MBA uh, after his his name. And I went to see both of them and I said, tell me about this MBA thing. I don't know many physicians who have MBAs. And they said, you know, it was how you learn how to you know manage and lead an organization. I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. And so um, I set my sights at that time on leading healthcare organizations. I thought that was going to be my career path. Um, you know, remarkably, a few years later, President Obama was elected president, uh, and I got to serve in a policy capacity um, at, you know, one of the more interesting times in, the, in our lifetime so far as it relates to health policy around the implementation of the High Tech Act, as well as the ACA, and was part of the founding team at CMMI. And um, so it was just a really, uh, you know, I think, exciting journey so far. And um, you know, had now executive leadership roles in the pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare delivery side, the health plan side. Uh, and, you know, I've gotten to see healthcare through a number of different angles. And, you know, I think it's deepened and, and uh, you know, broadened my perspective on why American healthcare is the way it is. And, uh, you know, I think has formed a, a new thesis for me on, on what we need to fix it, which, you know, is really leadership. I think mean, first and foremost, we need, you know, organizations that are led by leaders who lead instead of administrate. And um, I think one of our primary pathologies in U.S. healthcare is that um, we have organizations that are successful with the status quo. You've got leaders who actually, if they wanted to, could drive their organizations to do more of the right things and less of the wrong things. But more often than not, they choose not to. And I think that that's a 
that's something we need to, I, I think, confront and, and grapple with as an industry. And how do you change that? I think sometimes even leadership do want to make the change, but then the shareholder kind of freaked out, right? Because the status quo seems to be fine. Yeah, I mean, that's that's on the private market side, but a lot of healthcare is actually nonprofit. Um, in fact, I would say the predominance of American healthcare is probably nonprofit. Uh, you know, when you think of the large health systems, uh, and they have, you know, huge balance sheets. And rather than, I think, reinvesting their dollars in, you know, kind of business transformation, um, what they're doing is they're becoming venture capitalists. And, you know, people are seeing this as a positive development, but, um, you know, I've had the privilege over the last two years to have leading scan group and health plan. And what I can say very, you know, candidly now being in this seat is that, you know, my obligation is to make sure, you know, we're, we're investing those reserves, you know, that were kind of developed over a number of years in things that are going to lead to better and less expensive and more accessible healthcare for people long-term. That's the job. Um, and it's all that involves transforming my own business. And I think that part of the equation oftentimes gets forgotten in large so-called nonprofit health systems that frankly act more like for-profits that have shareholders to your point, uh, then they do act like nonprofits. And what do you think are the key factors that can drive that changes so that more of the investment will be towards improving the well-being of a lot of the the members. I think a lot of them not for profit would say that they will they want to do something to improve the member, but then you know sometimes the balance, what is the what is the right balance? Yeah, I think we have to change we have to change our overall kind of equation in healthcare. I think we largely view healthcare like we view other industries. In healthcare, if your top line revenues are growing and your bottom line revenues are growing, you're doing great. Nobody ever acknowledges the fact that if your top line revenues are growing and your bottom line revenues are growing, it means people are sicker. It means they actually need your services more. And people say, well, we need you know, a change in US public policy. And that, that, we used, that was the answer I was taught when I was an undergraduate, when I was a medical student, when I was a graduate student. But what's become clear and clear to me as time has gone on is that we actually have the policy instruments. We have the ACA, we have CMMI, we have a number of different demonstration projects that have been launched through CMMI. We have Medicare Advantage that allows health plan, health healthcare delivery organizations to operate under full risk. And yet a small fraction of organizations actually use those instruments to differentially manage the care of patients. And I think that we are missing, and, and so I, I, I take a big step back and I say, why? Why aren't these organizations using these policy instruments that exist? And you know, I go to a, a call that I was on with a number of different health system leaders where they said, where, where the same tile, tired old playbook was being repeated, which is our Medicare reimbursements are too low. We need more, you know, we need higher Medicare reimbursements. Um, which has been the playbook of health system leaders for the last, you know, 50 years. And it's been a winning playbook. Um, and I, I think it's time for us to demand, you know, from a corporate governance perspective, that people who are on the boards of health systems and healthcare organizations have to start asking for something different. You know, what they've asked for historically is grow my top line and grow my bottom line. And, you know, in healthcare, there is such a thing as supplier-induced demand, 
provider-induced demand, you know, and we see a lot of stuff that happens in healthcare that doesn't really improve health. Um, and, you know, when you say things like that, people accuse you of being anti-innovation. Uh, that is the usual trope. Oh, you know, if you're not paying for it, it doesn't mean, it means you don't care about creating, you know, innovation in healthcare. Um, and that's, that's a bunch of garbage. Uh, so, you know, I think there's that. Um, I also think we need to change our culture of medicine and change our culture of healthcare in our country. We believe more is always more. And, you know, I recently had the mis experience of being hit by a car walking down the street as a pedestrian. I hope you're okay. I was not jaywalking just for the record. I was crossing the street, you know, on a walk sign and someone was a distracted driver and they turned into me and they fractured my tibia. And, oh my. You know, and I, I've had to kind of go and access the healthcare system. And I see it through a very different lens. And, you know, um, the utilization management mindset that exists in healthcare, like how do I use as little as possible, oftentimes misses the opportunity to say, if I invest more now in serving this person, then, you know, they'll be better off later and costs will be lower later. Um, and again, we need more kind of total cost of care thinking as a, as a healthcare system. Uh, and we just don't have it. We don't have that stewardship or accountability. That is a, a challenge. I think it takes a while to get it almost like take a village to change that mentality. And somebody has to start that conversation. And I think human beings tend to be more like hurting mentality. They want to see other people. Absolutely. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And so, which probably is a good segue to um, for us to hear more, like about scan health and how scan health differentiate from any other health plan that people know. Yeah, so scan didn't get started as a health plan. We were founded in 1977 um, by a group of racially, gender diverse, um, uh, ethnically diverse community activists in Long Beach, California, who. Uh, and everything good comes from Long Beach. I learned that from <laughs> California. Um, uh, you know, who uh, ultimately said we want to find a different way to age in America, and that we don't want to end our lives in nursing homes. We want to be healthy and independent. And um, before it was cool to say that you cared about the social determinants of health, they cared about the social determinants of health. And um, you know, if you look at their slides from 1977, they may have, may, they may have just as well been written in 2021. I mean, they cared about food and transportation and, you know, uh, social isolation. And, you know, how do we make aging a better experience for people who really deserve it? People who've committed to their communities, done so much for others. And, you know, I would say that the, um, uh, one of the things that they did beautifully for a number of years, they operated what was called the social HMO demonstration project, which was a a demonstration project, you know, HICFA, which was CMS's predecessor organization, operated for a number of years to show how social determinants of health can be integrated into healthcare delivery. So what is old is new and what is new is old. 
Um, we then transitioned to become a Medicare Advantage plan and grew quite successfully over you know uh, two decades um, to serve over 220,000 beneficiaries in um, multiple counties of, of California. Uh, I was recruited to join the organization last year because my board, you know, I think very wisely um, kind of articulated the view that Medicare Advantage is one way to keep seniors healthy and independent, but it's not the only way to keep seniors healthy and independent. And um, so we've been on a, you know, on a three-part journey, which is um, number one, to uh, increase the growth of our core health plan by expanding to new geographies. If you've got a good thing, you want to take it to more places. We were four and a half stars, you know, five, five years in a row, unprecedented, you know, performance by any health plan like ours. Um, and so we, we're now in Arizona and Nevada, and we're looking at expanding to other states. We're adding a bunch of new products. Uh, so we're seeing, you know, tremendous growth of our core health plan. It, you know, diversification, you know, which is ultimately, um, you know, around finding new ways to achieve our mission. So we're launching new medical groups around specific populations and communities and needs. And that's been, you know, a really tremendous journey. And then the third is, um, is really around uh, cultural transformation. And, you know, there are a number of elements to that, most many of which are not super relevant to your audience. But I would say um, the one that is really significant is, is really embracing health equity as a um, as a goal and, you know, changing our thinking end to end, you know, as an organization, how we market, how we recruit, you know, how we contract with you know, clinical providers, um, how we measure and manage performance. Uh, and, you know, I think we've made some incredible strides over the last year in the area of, um, you know, kind of diversity strategy, uh, you know, serving new ethnic populations. Um, and it's, you know, it's been really remarkable. It's been really remarkable. Yeah. So I, I want to touch on a bit on your health equity. I mean, this year we have our ADAPT program. One of our focus is for a lot of our innovators to think about how can you use the technology to address the health equity you mentioned also earlier, oftentimes people like, well, you know, innovation is expensive. Uh, if it's, you know, if you want, you don't want to pay for it, you don't, you don't get innovation. And I think sometimes people think that innovation uh, gives you better quality of care, uh, but does it address the health equity? How do you find the right balance in what technology can reduce health disparities that can be adopted by your member or a company like Scan. Yeah, no, I would say um, you know a lot of it for for us is first it's about talking about your bad news. Um, you know, a lot of people love talking about health equity. Um, when George Floyd was murdered last year, I, I don't know how many PR firms had record quarters because they were writing these beautifully worded PR statements that translated into absolutely no action whatsoever at the ground level. And so there is a, you know, there's first step is talking about it, but then the question is, is what are you going to do about it once you've spoken about it? And, um, you know, I think we've, we've done a lot. Um, you know, we tied 15% of our 2021 compensation to whether we were closing medication adherence gaps, you know, between Caucasian patients and African-American and Latino patients. Um, and I can guarantee you when you put your money where your mouth is, people move. <laughs> um, I, I will tell you, um, you know, we've changed how we do marketing. We've changed how we do, you know, provider contracting. Um, so it's really about 
closing the gap between talk and action. And I think organizations are usually very comfortable just kind of saying the right things and then checking the box that we've done the right things. I think we've got a leadership team and a board that is far more interested in doing the right thing than we are in just saying we're doing the right thing. And um, I can tell you that's been um, a real change, you know, for me because I've, I've spent a lot of my career in organizations that have the words, you know, the right words on the wall, but they're not necessarily interested in actually effectuating those right words in the real world. And it's been, you know, refreshing and energizing um, to be part of an organization that suffers with a little bit of anxiety every day uh, about whether we're actually living up to the words on our walls. Mm-hmm. I think also sometimes, you know, a lot of people who are interested in healthcare, they do care about healthcare for everybody. And I think at the end of the day, everybody has to benefit. And so sometimes people who want to say we it's important for us, the technology can address health equity, but then it doesn't work on their other part, which is their bottom line. And I think that's where the disconnect is. Do you think? Uh, I do. I also just think people actually don't care as much as they say they do. I'm pretty cynical, actually. I'm, 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 you know, I think that people say they care a lot, but, you know, we're a very distracted and confused industry right now. Um, you know, we're very interested in value. You know, we have much, many more conversations about valuations and raises and series C, D, IPO than we do about what's underlying all of that. You know, are the companies that, that are getting so honored and revered actually making a difference? Are they actually changing care? And I think there's a handful of companies that are actually making a huge difference and are transforming care. And then there's others that aren't. And I think we, there's actually more people who know which ones are real and which ones who aren't than actually speak up. But I've learned that there's a code in, in American healthcare, which is, you know, thou shalt not speak ill of a company that you may invest in or you make, make, may make money on. And so I think there's a lot of secrets. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of secrets about, you know, kind of our the lack of effectiveness, a lot of what's being hailed as, you know, um, innovative and creative and game changing isn't really. Mm. So what would you say for somebody who are, you know, starting from scratch that when who are truly interested in making a difference? and come up with a technology innovation, what are the things that they need to really seriously consider before jumping in that really can address health equity? So I see so many people introducing solutions without actually studying what else is going on out there. So I would say start with just really understanding the broader landscape. The second thing is, is make sure you're actually solving a real meaningful problem. Um, You know, there's a number of kind of apps, solutions, tools, devices, when I look at the problem that people are solving, I'm like, is that really a problem? And, um, you know, and is it a problem that is worth spending your life on? And make sure that whatever it is that you choose is truly worthy of your most precious resource, which is your time on planet Earth. Um, And so, you know, I think it's very important to have, you know, some integrity around that. And then the third thing I would say is that there are many things that will distract you from being focused on the right things. And I would build a system around yourself to make sure that you are not straying from where you must be, which is laser focused on the difference that you actually want to make. 
that you know they're building and scaling a healthcare company can lead you in a lot of different directions. I look at you know some of what's happening around labor, the healthcare labor force, where you know we've gradually gone from hey we want to you know implement the use of nurse practitioners and you know community health workers and others in partnership with physicians to create true team based care to you know now what's happening is we're in this dystopian universe where people are op- acting and operating like expertise doesn't matter. And so they're taking work that used to be physician work and they're taking it and making it NP work. And then they're taking work that used to be NP work and then they're making it RN work. And then they're taking RN work and they're making it community health worker work, which is, which is a great labor arbitrage. And it works beautifully if there are systems and processes to make sure that people are receiving safe care at the end of the day and that the right work is going to the right place. Um, instead, we've created this faux politically correct dialogue around independence. And we're very focused on, you know, making sure that we're honoring people's independence as opposed to always making sure we're delivering really safe care in teams that are oriented and organized um, to do that. And that, you know, I would say that's something that we're, we're, we're really focused on right now. What do you mean by focusing on people's independence? Yeah. So people say, well, you know, we want to let so-and-so, you know, practice independently um, as opposed, you know, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, pharmacists, primary care docs versus specialists. I mean, there's, there's a version of this that plays out in almost every domain of healthcare at every level. And then they say, well, you know, pharmacists should really be able to prescribe X or nurse practitioners should really be able to do X or Y. And oftentimes the arguments are absolutely right. Um, But then, you know, it becomes sometimes more about like practitioner independence than about what's the absolute right thing for the patient. And again, I, I just think, you know, we've, we've been subtly controlled by corporate forces in healthcare to try to figure out how to deliver widgets at the most cheap cost that we can, which is absolutely the right thing to be doing. But we as professionals also should be looking at what do I have to do to make sure we're at absolutely be, you know, safely taking care of people hundred percent of the time. Um, and you know, those two things can sometimes come in conflict. And again, we avoid these tough conversations because they raise people's blood pressure. You know, I'm, I'm sure I may raise some people's blood pressure with this podcast and I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm just trying to surface. I'm, I'm really just trying to surface the unasked questions. I mean, I do think that we, we need to do more of that because um, it's far more comfortable to sit in a meeting and say, you know, that's great. That's wonderful. Than it is to say, you know, well, what about this? And what about that? And, you know, every one of us who has a family member on the front lines of healthcare delivery has seen, you know, has been in a situation where we wanted, you know, the right level of expertise, you know, applied to taking care of a family member, because there's some unanswered question where experience matters or intellect matters or insight matters or a base of knowledge matters where, you know, the health system has decided that a lay person answering the phone is going to somehow answer, you know, the question. And I think we have a problem in healthcare of strangers taking care of strangers instead of people who actually know people taking care of people who know other people. And so again, these are the kinds of things that I, I care about. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have independence for all these different practitioners. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, is we have to ask the hard questions around what are the boundary conditions around which you know, something belongs here versus belongs there. And instead of having those hard conversations, we're just saying everyone equals everyone else. 
And that, that also, you know, doesn't sit well with me because I think there are some questions that belong with the super specialist who spent 25 years thinking about things. And then there's other questions that belong with the lay person answering the phone. For some reason, I thought when I think about what you were just saying is that the reason things become, uh, you know, the specialists, um, certain things are being taken care of by somebody who had less specialized is because it increased access. That was kind of, I thought, the reason why they go, like things that used to be done by the surgeon now going to nurse practitioner is because there's no... I don't think that's about, I think it's partially about access, but I think it's mostly the cost. labor arbitrage and uh-huh. how do I, you know, deliver these services most efficiently and bill for them as expensively as I can. I mean, I think, and again, um, you know, we have all these funny conversations about labor shortages, primary care shortages, right. surgical shortages, you know, I, I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure we have any shortages, and what. And I'm being. I'm saying that to be provocative. Meaning, I think if we organized and structured our healthcare teams, we could make people way more efficient, and they could see a lot more patients. Um, you know, cross cultural comparisons are are highly you know relevant and helpful here. Um, you know, if if you and I were to go to India right now and go see a neurologist, there'd be a line of 150 people there, and that person would see 150 patients in that day. And, you know, you could argue it's not super safe, but I would argue that 80% of what we have clinicians doing, you know, in, in the course of the U.S. operating in the U.S. healthcare system, billing, you know, pro forma activities for medical legal reasons, whatever it is, you know, doesn't necessarily add a ton of value to patient care. And so, um, again, we need to strike a happy medium. Mm-hmm. And how is, like, do you think your role at SCAN can you influence that kind of change? Yeah, I mean, we're building a bunch of new entities at SCAN. We're building our own primary care model. We're building our own palliative care model. Uh, you know, we're building a, uh, an African-American medical group for African-American doctors by African-American, uh, for African-American uh, patients by African-American doctors. Um, we have so many different initiatives underway. Again, we're a regional entity, you know, taking a bite at the apple. But I think uh, our charge is to demonstrate the art of the possible and also create, you know, um, a beacon that others can copy, frankly. Uh, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Um, you know, I think my earliest and best career experience around this was around the work I did at Caremore uh, around loneliness and building interventions to address the needs of lonely patients. Um, today, there's a whole industry of these companies now that, you know, I, I would say, partially at least inspired by the work we did at, at Caremore um, and many people are benefiting from it. And so, again, I think, you know, a lot of it is making sure we're defining the problem appropriately and that that clarity of problem definition and then demonstrating the art of the possible creates, you know, this duplication and replication, you know, that I think ends up creating real change in healthcare. Yeah. So I know we are running short on time but I could not help when I saw before this interview, uh, I, I look up your the article that you wrote about you, how the importance of attending funeral that you said. And I thought it was really interesting. It resonated with me very well. I mean, I recently lost somebody completely unexpectedly. And then seven years ago, eight years ago, I lost my husband unexpected as well. So it's interesting how you were saying about it's all about the people and 
and you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit more before I can. I don't want to rephrase what you just say. You know, what I can just tell you is many of us are ambitious and we're trying to create a lot of change in the world, and we're also stupid. <laughs> and we're and and what I mean by that is we're we are um, you know exquisitely focused on wanting to um, you know make the world better, but at the same time, we're not necessarily doing our part to actually participate in the lives of the people we care about. And, you know, I've had three mentors pass away in the last year and, um, you know, every one of them was someone who was super meaningful and important to me. And I was, I felt really good about the fact that I'd spent a lot of time with them before they died. Um, really quality time, quality interactions. And, um, and I was just recalling how 20 years ago when I was an intern, working at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, you know, that's, I think, the post that you're referring to. You know, I had a friend who, who died and she was in a, in a tragic bus accident and people were assembling in Pittsburgh for her funeral. And, you know, because I was applying to medical school, I was busy, it was a really exciting internship to me. I kind of told myself a story about how I couldn't, I couldn't take the time to go and do that. And, um, uh, man, I, I'm embarrassed by that and um, happy that I've made some progress since then. But, you know, I, you know, I'm still looking at the ways and there's a lot of self-reflection going on about what are the ways in my life where, you know, I might be doing myself a disservice where 20 years from now I will look back and be embarrassed by. And so, you know, trying my best to avoid those moments these days just because, um you know, you do realize how precious our lives are here. And um, you have to be good to the people you work with. You have to be good to the people you're trying to serve and um, and be good to your family and friends. You know, that's what we're all here to do. Yeah, no, I totally, I think oftentimes funeral is a stark reminder about uh, the importance, the reason we, you know, what makes us happy is the connection we have to people, the impact that we have on people. And uh, I came, I used, you know, the, the thing I also learned is like, it's good to attend a funeral, but I think it's even better if you spend the time before the funeral, because it's always a great party, but the person who needs to be there are not there. <laughs> You're 100% right, you know, 100% right. I thought that was a good life lesson. I thought when I saw that, it's just sometimes, you know, we just are caught up in the rat race. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Sure thing. Really appreciate the conversation. Look forward to doing it again sometime, maybe. Yes, that would be great. Thanks a lot. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.